Good morning. Welcome to the teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen, and I am glad you are here. This morning, we are going to be continuing in our series that's based on the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is uh, number 12, I believe, and the title of the sermon is 10 Ways to Be Perfect. But before we do that, uh, I just want to remind you that coming up on October 11th, we have our first in-person worship service happening at 4 p.m. And after that, we'll see what happens. Um, before we jump into the teaching time, I thought I would walk us through a confession of sin as well. So if you want to follow along down in the comment section, you'll find the confession of sin, how it works as I will read it. If we were in person, I would give you a, a moment or two or several, depending on how many you needed, um, to confess your sins, and then we'll continue. So let us pray. O oh God, our God, send out your light and your truth. Let them bring us, lead us. Let them bring us into your presence. Reveal Christ in our midst, that we would sense his leading, that we would listen to his word, that we would recognize his call. Anoint us with your spirit, that we would sense the truth. Forgive us our sins through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, to whom belongs all glory, together with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now, if we were in person, I would give you a moment to confess your sins, and then I would say, hear the good news. And then upon that, I would give you an assurance of pardon. So hear the good news. My promise to you is this, is if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And not only does he forgive them, but he casts them as far as the east is from the west, and he will never, ever hold them against you. And so I say to you, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So this morning's text, what we're going to actually be looking at specifically is Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Now, that's the preface to the Ten Commandments. It's the build-up to the Ten Commandments. And as we enter into this text, um, first let me pray for us, and then I have a question for you. So let us pray. Father, I do pray now that you would come and you would teach us about um, not just the Ten Commandments, but the purpose behind them, how they actually affect us, what they have to do with our lives. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So if I were to ask you the question, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What would you say? Now, you can, if you're with a group now, you can even pause it and ask that, or you can wait till after. But what would you say the purpose? Now, not the uses of the Ten Commandments or what theologians call the uses of the law. But when I say purpose, I'm really asking, why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? Was there a purpose to it? Um, people use the Ten Commandments for lots of things, you know, like we hang them in courthouses. And one of the reasons we hang them in courthouses, at least my understanding, is so that it can be a reminder of where we got our laws from, right? That all the, the multitude of laws we have in the U U.S. come initially from the Ten Commandments. Other people, I remember years ago when I first started here as a pastor, an older gentleman came up to me and he said, Pastor, I would be willing to pay for it if we put Ten Commandments out in front of the church. And I said, so why do you want to put the Ten Commandments outside the church? And he said, well, it'll tell people where we stand when they drive by. And, and I asked him, I said, 
do you think people don't know where we stand? And so long story short, we didn't put Ten Commandments in front of the church. But I think there's a lot of confusion about the Ten Commandments until right now. So one of the questions you need to ask about the Ten Commandments, one of the ways to get at the purpose is not by first asking why, but ask by asking when were the Ten Commandments given. So for example, up to this point in this series, we started at Genesis 1 and we've worked our way up. But have you ever thought about this? Why didn't God, if the Ten Commandments are so important, which they are, why didn't God just give them to Adam and Eve? Or why didn't he just give them to Adam before Eve was ever created? And he said, Adam, here's the deal. There's a tree of, the no the, of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And in order to make sure you don't forget, I'm going to put these stone tablets out in front of the tree. So every time you walk toward the tree, you can be reminded, okay, as long as I don't do these things, I'm not going to transgress the law of God. Why didn't he do that? He didn't. Um, why didn't he, God give Adam the Ten Commandments after they sinned in the garden. In other words, he could have said, all right, Adam, you screwed up. Maybe it's my, maybe it's my bad, right? Maybe you just didn't know. And so now here are the, these 10 commandments and a bunch of 630 other laws, basically. Um, why didn't he do that? We don't know exactly why, but we find out eventually, it seems like purpose is, is heading toward the moment we're in now. You see, why didn't he give the 10 commandments to Abraham or Noah? I mean, think about it. Noah, God looked up upon the intention of mankind's heart and every thought they had was only evil continually. Why didn't God, if the Ten Commandments were some kind of remedy or they were some kind of magic or some kind of moral thing, why didn't God say, Noah, just put these Ten Commandments out in front of your house. That way people at least know where you stand. Do you think that would have changed anything? Do you think that would have changed people's hearts? Do you think if, Moses, if Noah had the Ten Commandments after, it would have changed anything? I, I personally don't think so. And of course, you get to Abraham. God could have given the Ten Commandments to Abraham, I guess. He could have said, I'm calling you to be a blessing to all the families in the earth. And the best way you can do that is by showing them these 10 rules, 10 ways to be perfect. He didn't do that. And he, in theory, he could have waited till after Moses and given them to Joshua, right? Israel makes it into the promised land. And God says, you know, I know those are rough 40 years. Now that you're here in the land, here's these Ten Commandments. If you just follow these you're going to be good to go. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them the Ten Commandments shortly after. It's about three months after they have been saved from, from bondage in Egypt, and they are now getting ready to head out on this journey into the, to the Promised Land. And in some ways, it seems like the worst time, right? I don't know about you, but when things are hectic or when you're on the move, at least for me in my house, if my wife is like busy getting ready to go teach or something, and I try and stop her and it doesn't go very well or with me by the way um and yet god grabs israel right before they're getting ready to start this big pilgrimage and that is when he gives them the ten commandments and so what we're going to look at this morning as we work our way toward the purpose it will be revealed in the end um is we're going to look at three things from this text we're going to look at our deliverance we're going to look at our calling and we're going to look at our mission now, notice I said we're going to look at our deliverance, our calling, and our mission. We are going to look at Israel's deliverance, Israel's calling, and Israel's mission. But the same thing that applies to Israel applies to us. In other words, one of the things about the Ten Commandments is, are they still relevant today? If used correctly, absolutely. And so they do have everything to do with our deliverance, our calling, 
and our mission. So let's, let me read the text first, and then I will start with our deliverance. So hear the word of God. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Well, it, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him to the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him and all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our deliverance. God has, th this comes on the heels of the Exodus, which is the greatest event in, in Old Testament history, and also the, the heels of them crossing the Red Sea, which got the attention of the known world. In other words, if you remember after the crossing of the Red Sea, the nations around Israel now started to pay attention to Israel and to Israel's God. And so God brings them to Sinai. If you remember back in Exodus 3, in the, the episode with the burning bush, God promised Moses, he says, I'm going to deliver my people and you will bring them back to this mountain. Now, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you look at, on one hand, how big it is. It's like when people in Georgia say, hey, we're going to the mountains for holiday, but you're from the Pacific Northwest and you're like, what? It's about 7,500 feet high, uh, which isn't very tall compared to Mount Rainier, which is about 14,000 or so. And yet um, there's a geographical term that I learned called topographical prominence, which means when you're actually on site looking at Mount Sinai, it's only about a thousand feet tall. But so, so the practical height of Mount Sinai is only about a thousand feet tall. And you say, well, gosh, that's no mountain at all. Think about this though. God comes down onto this mountain in thunder and fire a little bit later in this chapter. And if God was going to come down on a mountain in thunder and fire, would you rather be standing at the mount, bottom of Mount Rainier looking up and going, wow, that's two and a half, three miles. That's, that's pretty cool. Or having it be right on top of you. So when God comes to Mount Sinai, he comes to Mount Sinai and he tells Moses, here is what I want you to tell to the people. So God is getting ready to give the Ten Commandments in the next chapter. And this is the preface. This is what he wants them to know about why he is giving them the Ten Commandments. And the first thing he talks about is deliverance. Verse four, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. So what does God tell Moses to tell the people of Israel? He says, tell them, tell them what I did, tell them how I bore them or how I carried them through the, the, from the, on eagle's wings and how I brought them to myself. Did you notice the pronoun that's used over and over in that verse? I, 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 right? When you think about the gospel, the gospel always starts with I, and that's God speaking. He says, I will, I shall, I promise. 
And the law starts with you shall, you will, you should promise. And so God wants to remind Israel here that the, the deliverance that he has wrought on their behalf was all of grace. In other words, it was 100% grace. They were enslaved and they were helpless and they were hopeless and they were in bondage in Egypt and he came and he delivered them. He didn't come and give them 10 commandments and say, all right, here's the deal. You guys work on these 10 things and when you're good at about eight or nine of them, then I will come and deliver you. He didn't do that at all. He didn't even mention the law. He simply delivered them. And so the first thing God wants to remind Israel is that salvation is of grace and nothing else. That there are no works. There is nothing they could do. Not, they couldn't be good enough to be saved. It was because God chose to set his love upon them and save them. And the same is true for us, right? Salvation in the New Testament, the, the, the exodus that the New Testament provides us from our sins, the deliverance through the person and work of Jesus is all of grace, right? If you're not a Christian right now, think of um, Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, I meet people all the time who are not Christians but who believe in God. And when you ask them about it, they say, I'm trying to be a good person. Well, here's spoiler alert. You're never going to be good enough. And here's the good news. God doesn't expect that. God has already provided the perfect sacrifice. God has already provided perfect obedience on your behalf. The question is, will you embrace it? Will you say, God, you know, I'm going to, to take that deal. I'm going to trust that Jesus work on my behalf is sufficient for you to have a relationship with me. And if you are a Christian, um, remember verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For it is by grace we are saved through faith, and this not of ourselves it is a gift of God so that no one should boast. I mean, one of the, the, the hardest things about becoming a Christian is not constantly sliding back into Egypt or sliding back into some kind of workspace religion. Right? If you are a Christian, what that means is you have been delivered from your sins. The record of them has been nailed to the cross and it has been taken away. It literally does not exist. All of your sins were given to Jesus and all of his righteousness was given to you. And if that's true, what that means is God is, can be no more pleased with you in the future than he is right now. That he's pleased with you on the basis of your your relationship to Jesus, not on the relationship on the basis of your works, and that because of that, um, what happens after he saves us? Does he just save us and then give us ten commandments and say, okay, now here's the deal: I saved you. Now just keep your nose clean, and here's ten ways to do it. Ten ways to stay out of trouble. That's not the, the, the deal. He saves us and then informs us that we actually have a calling. And that's where this text goes next. Look at verse five. It says in verse five, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is amazing, actually, because every other god in the, in the pantheon, if you will, the ancient Near East, you had to sort of walk on eggshells around them and not make noise and not upset them and constantly sort of bring your obeisance and your honor to them. And what God says is, number one, I saved you purely by grace. That's how I delivered you. But number two, 
I want to partner with you. In other words, I'm calling you into a partnership, into a covenant. And I didn't just save you. I saved you for a reason. Notice the reason that he says he saved them. He says, now, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. So he says, you need to obey. What does it mean to partner with God? Once you have been saved, it means to obey him. It means to keep covenant. And he says, in doing these things, Israel, you are my treasured possession. And that language there is the language in the ancient Near East of, of a king who would have a great treasury. The nation would have a treasury, but the king would have his own treasury, his own special treasury for special projects. And God says to Israel, you are my special treasure for my special projects. And what is my special project with which I want to partner with you? And it's nothing less than the redemption of all humanity and the renewal of all creation. Notice he's telling Israel this before they ever even enter Canaan, that he says, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, not just among Israel, but among all peoples, which goes back, of course, to the covenant he made with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth in you. And so Israel is called to be um, participate in the redemption of humanity by, by being a blessing to all nations, but also there to participate in the renewal of all creation. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, specifically Adam, um, God said to Adam, he said, because of you, cursed is the ground. In other words, there's a theological principle that says this, as man goes, so goes creation. And if humanity falls in, under curse and blight, then creation is under curse and blight. Remember Romans 8 says all creation groans for the day that the sons of God will be revealed because as man is redeemed and restored, so creation will be redeemed and restored. So part of Israel's calling was to be a blessing to, to all peoples, but also to be uh, to participate in the renewal of all creation. We have that same calling. We have the exact same calling. Why, does, why did you become a Christian? Why did God have you become a Christian? Did he said, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose Tommy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save him just so that he never has to do anything uncomfortable for the rest of his life. That's my goal for him. I don't believe that. And I don't think the Bible teaches that. That God saved us for a reason. Reason number one is to participate in the redemption of all humanity. And that means being agents of the gospel to those around us. And that's tightly bound to our participation in the renewal of all creation. We don't have time to talk about worldview now, but everything that you do in your life, if you're an accountant, if you're a police officer, if you're a doctor, if you're a garbage man, if you're a homeschool mom, whatever you are, that is your primary calling, the place in which God has placed you to renew and restore creation. So we have that calling, but we don't just have a calling. We also have a mission. So we look here, we see our deliverance is all by grace. God has called us to participate in the redemption of humanity and the renewal of all creation. What is our mission then? Because that's the next thing that God says in verse six, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses called, came and called the elders of the people and set them before them all these words and the Lord, that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So as far as calling, there's a good paragraph in the Jesus Storybook Bible that summarizes that where God says, the whole earth belongs to me, God said, but I have chosen you. You are my special family. I want you to live in a way that shows everyone else what I'm like so that they can know me too. That is part of our mission. Notice in verse six where he says, you should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does he mean by saying that Israel should be a kingdom of priests and holy nation? This is really an interesting passage because right now there aren't any priests in Israel. The priesthood doesn't exist. The Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't exist. And yet God says you are to be a kingdom of priests. All of you, Israel, are to be priests and a holy nation. What does he mean by that? Well, by a kingdom of priests, what do priests do? Priests mediate the character of God and they mediate between man and God and priests also teach. So by as kingdom of priests, if I could boil it all down, basically what they are supposed to do is they're to mediate the presence of God to people, but also they are to tell the story of their redemption to people. That's what priests, preachers do. They teach people. And if you remember in Deuteronomy six or several places in the, in the old Testament, where God says, you know, when your children come and say, why do we have to obey these laws? Or when they come and ask you about this or about that, you start like this. We were slaves in Egypt. Wow. In other words, why do we have all of this stuff going on? And you start with the fact that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord delivered us. You mediate the presence of God and you tell the story of God. And if, if you're living it right out in the, the world and your friend comes up to you and says, why do you live this way? Why do you do what you do? Tell me about your marriage. Tell me about the way you parent your kids. It seems different than some people. The way we start is I was a slave in Egypt. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and Jesus saved me. He made me alive. He didn't make me good. He made me alive. And once I was alive, then I could start trying to be good. Right? The whole Ten Commandments, by the way, when we get to chapter 20, they don't start with, you shall have no other gods before me. They say, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the hand of Egypt. Now have no other gods than me. Even the very commandments themselves in the text of it start with grace. That is the story we are to tell. We're not only to tell the story, but we are to live the story. When he says, you should be a holy nation. Basically, the Israel as a nation should model God's character. And Israel should not only tell the story, but they should live out the story. Now, don't be confused. Some people confuse and say, that's why our country needs to be a Christian country and we need to obey the God's laws. Ideally, that would be great. But that's not what this is calling us to. What this is calling us to is in the context of any governmental system. If you're a Christian, you're a citizen of a different kingdom. And the laws of that kingdom start with the Ten Commandments. And we follow them not in order to be saved, but we follow them because we have been saved. The, the, before we are Christians, you look at the law and the law is scary. And afterward, you look at the law and it's aspirational. You say, maybe I could live that way. And if you want me to boil it down for you, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, the whole 
purpose. Some, a lawyer came and said, you know, what is basically the summary of the law? And Jesus said, the summary of the law is just this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in this, all the law and prophets are summarized. In other words, can you love God and can you love your neighbor? Maybe, maybe not, right? That's what's interesting by the end of this text. Because at the end of this text, um, in verse 7 and 8, it says this, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And I was sitting, I was wondering, thinking, is Moses sending God an email or is he sending him a text? And after he says, okay, here's what went down. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And when Moses reported all these to the Lord, he was like, L-O-L-O-L-O-L. He's putting, you know, uh, grimace, laughy face, right? R-O-F-L, all these memes because it's a joke, right? And this isn't the only time in the Old Testament. Joshua, it happens where he, they do this covenant renewal and they read the law and he says, now are you going to obey? And people say, we're going to obey the law now. And then they don't at all. And I thought I would just close today because the, the closing paragraphs of this week's version in the Jesus Storybook Bible are really good. It makes the point about why um, they don't obey the law and what the purpose and how we end. I mean, if you think about it, if I, if I didn't speak it yet, the purpose of the Ten Commandments ultimately, that's what you've been waiting for, is basically this, to preserve and equip God's people in their mission to bless the nations and to renew creation. In, in other words, God didn't give us the Ten Commandments just in order to to make us be good or to have us be good where they are actually to be used in order to bear witness before i read this think of first peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. first peter says this he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession, right? That's the same language that we just read in Exodus. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, in order to, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the excellent light, right? Tell the story. And then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may say good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the first, he says, you need to tell the story, but second, you need to live the story. It's hard to argue with someone who lives the story. Now, here's the problem with this whole part of the Jesus Storybook Bible, but they come through in the end. Because the problem with Israel saying, we will obey, we will obey, you've got to have at least one person who has the ability to obey these laws. And in Israel, there is not one. Among us, there is not one. But there is one who came. Let me close with this. It says, God gave them other rules. Like, don't make yourself pretend gods, don't kill people, or steal, or lie. The rules show God's people how to live and how to be close to Him, and how to be happy, how to live your best life. They showed how life worked best. 
God's promises, God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it, no matter how hard they tried. They could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules, and many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them, because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray now that we would um, look at the Ten Commandments and even the preface of the Ten Commandments and realize going into the preface, going into the Ten Commandments, um, you wanted us to remember our deliverance. You wanted to remember us our calling. You wanted to remember the, the, our mission and that you gave us the Ten Commandments as part of being able to fulfill that mission to both tell your story and to live your story and to show the nations what you were like. And so I pray that you would work that deeply into our hearts. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen and amen. At this point, if we were meeting in public, we would have a doxology and an offertory, and we don't have that. Obviously, it's just me here. Um, but if you would like to donate to the Ministry of New Hope, you can find the information down in the description section. Many of you have continued faithfully through this pandemic, and I can't tell you how thankful I and the elders are and the, the whole church. We are doing fantastic. So thank you for that. So I thought I would close this morning uh, with a profession of faith, as I often do. And the profession of faith comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. If you're interested in studying more about the Ten Commandments, there's no better document than the Westminster Larger Catechism. And if you start at question 99, it basically gives you rules for interpreting the Ten Commandments. And it's really great. Um, also, I did a series on it, 2015, on all the commandments. We'll try and get those uploaded, perhaps. But either way. I'm going to read to today from Westminster Larger Catechism, number 95. And the question is this, how does the moral law apply to all human beings? Answer, the moral law reveals the holy nature and will of God to all human beings and obliges them to live by it. It also reveals to them the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, which shows them they are unable to keep it. The moral law also humbles human beings with the recognition of their sinfulness and misery and thereby gives them a better awareness of their need for Christ and for the perfection of his obedience. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this place reminding you that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go from this place in his peace. Amen and amen.